here for the unborn. That, yes, Adult Sunday School 2. That's going to be starting um, on February 8th, and we're going to be talking about Christ and culture. That's what it's going to be. So, good deal. Well, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one. There's some in the back there you can grab. You can have one of those. If you don't own a Bible, I encourage you, take it, have it. Um, that's, that Bible is there for you uh, to take home and um, read and enjoy as you like. I encourage you to do that. Well, Andrea Sachs, uh, she uh, graduated from journalism school at Northwestern. And uh, her dream was to go to New York and be a real-time reporter. Uh, and instead, all she found for work, uh, instead of at a, a real newspaper, was uh, to be the junior personal assistant to uh, Miranda Priestley with Fashion Magazine. And uh, she said, you know, I'm going to do my time at this fashion magazine for a year, you know. I will deal with uh, the fakeness that I see among people here. Uh, I'm not going to sell out into the materialism and the pettiness uh, that is around this fashion magazine. But in the year that uh, Andy, as she goes by, and Andy spends at this uh, runway magazine, uh, she finds that uh, the Jimmy Choo shoes, and the Michael Coors dresses uh, were just too much. And uh, she, too, uh, fell into that trap of selfishness, being image conscious, of stepping over others to get where she wanted to go. Well, if you uh, know anything, this is what I'm describing is not a real person. Instead, it's uh, the 2006 hit movie, uh, The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, um, I can proudly say as a man, I watched that movie. It's okay. And in The Devil Wears Prada, we see that evil doesn't show up with a red cape or a red pitchfork. But instead, it shows up with uh, high heel red pumps in the person of Miranda Priestley. A person that tempts, the person that uh, uh, tries to bring Andy into this way of living and succeeds. Today, we also are going to see an image of the devil. Not, uh, again, that red pitchfork image we might have, or those horns, or whatever it might be. Instead, a person masquerading as the angel of light, who is very subtle and crafty, and whose ends are very destructive. And in the story we're going to see today, we're going to see how the devil tempts Jesus. And hopefully we can extrapolate from this passage in Luke how the devil ends up tempting us. What does that look like? So that's the question I have for you this morning as we look in this text in Luke chapter 4. How does the devil tempt us? What does that look like? So turn with me. It's on page 859 in the Pew Bibles. Um, and I uh, encourage you to pay attention as we read God's Word. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, 
It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we do need you in this time, especially talking about a heavy subject like this. God, we need your protection. We need your spirit. We need you to guard us from all temptation. And God, we pray that uh, you would um, just be with us this morning as we look at this word and we talk about uh, this subject of temptation and the devil. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, you came at a good time. We're starting the, the book of Luke. And uh, we see that Luke is a person that accentuates um, the humanity of Christ. Specifically, early in Luke, we see the virgin birth. We see Jesus uh, being literally a child, growing up, facing the things that children face. Um, uh, Facing the idea of um, having parents, of being a carpenter, of growing in the knowledge of God. All these kind of things, him growing up as a person. And what comes with being fully human. And we see that Luke is a, a writer that. Um, specifically writes uh, to a Greek audience. And he's really trying to communicate to this Greek audience, you know, I understand you Greeks have an idea that um, gods can dwell among us in your writings. And uh, they take the form of men. But I'm going to show you, and we're going to show you through the life of Jesus, that Jesus doesn't just take the form of a man. Jesus is fully human. He comes from a woman. He comes from a lineage. He comes from Abraham. He comes from the first man, Adam. As much as God, uh, Jesus is fully God, he's also, also fully man. And we see also that uh, Jesus' ministry um, is coming and starting. And uh, we see that he was uh, put in a position where Uh, John the Baptist kind of anointed his ministry and baptized him. And in this baptism, God came upon him uh, through the Holy Spirit came like a dove. And God said, this is my beloved son who I am well pleased. This is big. This is like the fireworks of ministry. It's all started. Here it is. Jesus is the one to start his ministry. It's already all the time of his childhood, all this work he's done. Now he's the age of 30. Let it begin. 
But instead of Jesus just starting his ministry in the sense we might think of miracles and healings and doing all the work we think of Jesus, the first start of his ministry is being in the desert for 40 days, fasting. 40 days is symbolic and also would make us think about the Old Testament. 40 years was the amount of time that Israel wandered in the wilderness. 40 days was how long the storm was um, that Noah and his family was in the ark. 40 days is the amount of time that Moses fasted. 40 days was a symbol of times of testing and pressure and trial. And here is what Jesus is starting to begin his ministry being in that place. I think the point is this. Being made flesh, being a human, Jesus starting his ministry with trial and temptation shows us that even Jesus faced the things that we do in life. Hunger, thirst, temptation, pressure, trial. And we see that Jesus also is in a world in rebellion. A world that is broken, that is run by a deceiver, but the prince of the power of the air, the devil. And that is also what Jesus is facing in this temptation. So devil, um, it's a Greek word, uh, diablos, and again, uh, that's where um, Luke is coming from, from more of a Greek background, so it would be fitting that he used the Greek language for it. And uh, it literally means uh, accuser. And uh, we see in the Hebrew, instead of using the word devil, they use the name Satan, which means adversary. So you can see these names of devil and Satan are kind of uh, intermixed and, and used, um, used to equal each other depending on the gospel writer and, again, the audience that he is talking to. And... Uh, we saw that uh, last week I talked about this. I said uh, the Bible is historical, that it is uh, reliable, that uh, we can look at its historicity and see that Jesus did exist, that he did do something. And uh, it's something that we can't even our modern kind of uh, critical kind of thinking, a scientific world, that uh, it has cred. Uh, now do I have to backtrack? <laughs> Uh, I think if you're uh, anyone uh, that uh, is coming from a modern world and uh, from scientific reason, as I've just said, the Bible is historical. And now I just read a story about uh, a figure, the devil, coming and talking to Jesus. Really? An actual devil? You believe in that stuff? Is that really true? I mean, that sounds very uh, kind of mysterious and far-fetched and maybe be allegorical, but not really true. For some of you, you might have no problem with the idea that a devil exists. But I want to give this warning to you. And this is the first temptation that I think the devil uses. I will quote Lewis on this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Two equal and opposite errors. One to deny the existence of the devil and the other is to exaggerate the devil's control. So the first, to deny. So what is the devil? Again, this guy with red horns and a red pitchfork? No. Okay, the Bible does not explain the devil in that way. We might get that from Dante's Inferno from the Middle Ages, and it's gone through literature over time until we've gotten in Bugs Bunny cartoons, whatever it might be. That's kind of our picture sometimes the world has of the devil. But here is the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview says this. There is a creator, and there is the creation. God created all things. He created the world. He created angels. He created humans. And what happened was, some of these angels fell. In a sense, they tainted what was good in this world. The creation that was all good that God created, and they tainted it. And they fell from heaven. And that is where we get the devil. Now again, living in a post-enlightenment culture, that kind of narrative seems very, very crazy. So I want to try to explain it the best I can philosophically. And uh, just let me have a stab at this and uh, see what you think. I think all of us feel that there's a sense of what justice is. A sense that the world should be a certain way. That there should be a right and a wrong. There should be a way that the world should be ordered. That some things are just innately wrong. Murder is not right. It shouldn't be this way. There shouldn't be death. There shouldn't be uh, cheating and lying. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And this is where we get the sense of good and bad. My argument is that how can you believe in a good and an evil if there is nothing outside of this world to describe what good and evil is. There has to be a standard. There has to be a way that defines outside of the material world, outside of what we see, of what is right and what is wrong. That's my first argument for the existence of God. But then there are many that would say this, especially among Eastern thoughts, That, yeah, there is evil and good, and it is all within the world and what we see, but it is all just the one. There is no creator and creation distinctive. There is just the one, the creation. And you throw everything into this creation, good and bad, and sickness and death and hope and love, all these things come together, together, the yang, the yang, Hindu thought, whatever it might be. They're all just part of the one. And they are co-equal, struggling through time. This is the reason I have a problem with Eastern thought. The problem is this. If there is just the one, if there is not a creator outside of the creation, we therefore have no standard to say something is good and something is bad. 
It just is. It's just a struggle. It's just something that will exist over time into eternity. The one. But there has to be something outside of this world. Something that says into the world that we see both good and evil that says this is not the way it's supposed to be. There is an end game in the way the world should be ordered and how it should end up. The idea of justice and a right and a goodness. As we sang in Amazing Grace, in 10,000 years we'll sing and see a world the way it's supposed to be made. Again, if you just believe that all there is is the creation, how can you complain about death? That just is. It's just the way the world works. But instead, God says, no, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And this is where we get the devil. God created a world that was good. A world that was perfect in creation. But then there came something, a tainting of this good. Someone that took what was good and abused it. For anything to come from that, a tainting to come, it requires volition, intelligence, attributes of a personal being, i.e. the devil. Okay, that's my philosophical argument. Some of you might have checked out during that whole time. Let me just give some evidential things. You know, many people, when I talk about the devil, they'd say, listen, really the reason that there's sin and problems in the world, ugliness, it's just because um, of ignorance. Or it's because of psychological problems or sociological problems or economic problems. The reason that there's problems is just because, you know, we just don't understand. We've, we face trials in our back and our psychology, and that's the why we do evil. And so the key to getting rid of evil in the world is just understanding. It's just knowing. It's just getting rid of economic problems, psychological problems, sociological problems. If we get rid of that, we get rid of evil in the world. That is, so you know, a modern view. Okay? Um, I'd say this. We have tried that experiment, haven't we? <laughs> There have been nations that have said that exact same thing. Russia, <laughs> communist Russia said, okay, the, reason, the way to get rid of evil is to get rid of those psychological, sociological, economic problems, and then evil will not exist. Those experiments I hope we've seen in the 20th century have failed. Through all the government programs, even we've established in America, all the assistant programs, all the ways that we give psychological training, all the kind of schooling we give, all this stuff that we bring to be able to solve the problems of this world, has it worked? No. You would think, though, in the most enlightened time of human history, that evil would be less. But many times it's not. It's worse. My argument, again, is there is a real force. There is a real person and action in spiritual world that is working upon us as individuals, upon governments, upon society. That is working from the outside to corrupt this world, to rule this world. 
Oh, Dan, this is such an enlightening sermon and so positive. I'm sorry. But uh, I think the problem is many times we can exaggerate this. We can move from an idea of the first temptation of denying it exists to the place of exaggeration. And that pendulum moving that far is just as dangerous. And what it does is you say, the devil made me do it. <laughs> the reason that I sin, the reason I have problems is because that evil force working upon me, the devil made me do it. That is not what the Bible says. In fact, we are still culpable. We are guilty. Everyone is without excuse for the choices that they make. You cannot blame the devil for them. It is our own choices. It is our own sin. It is our own falling into the devil's temptation. The devil can work upon us, can tempt us, but it is us that chooses. And there is a lie that the devil does. And he does it to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I can give you this whole world. I have the right to give it to you. And it's really a half-truth. Yes, the devil at this time is the ruler of this world. But the truth is he will not be victorious over this world. He has lost the battle for the world. He is not the one that can give the world to Jesus. Instead, only God can. And we see that Jesus is victorious and powerful over the devil. And when we read the book of Luke, we see that Jesus himself is the one that can cast out demons. The one that has power over this realm. I like what Alistair Begg says about this. The devil is in checkmate. The devil has lost. Yeah, sure, he can move the pawns around the board still. He can move his rook here or his knight there. He can do these little things, but truthfully, the, the game is done. Jesus is victorious. If God is for us as Christians, who can be against us? Neither death, nor life, nor things created, nor anything in this world can separate us from the love of God, even the devil himself. If you want to have this conversation with me later, you can. But I totally disagree with some Christians that say that the devil can possess and be a part of Christians and possess them. That is totally contrary to the nature of the Spirit and our ability to God says nothing can separate us from His love. He can tempt us. He can lie to us. He can exaggerate His power. But ultimately, Jesus is victorious and His reign is over that realm. So, the first temptation is denying that the devil exists or over-exaggerating his power. Let's go and see the way that the devil specifically is going to tempt Jesus and how it plays out to us. And I'm ready. I mean, the devil's on the scene. I'm ready to gear up for some big temptations. This is battle royale time, right? Jesus versus Satan. I mean, this is going to be some good stuff. You know, I want to see some things like you know, the, Ro- the, the Roman rulers coming in front of Jesus and Satan saying, here we go, I will give you the Roman rulers into your hands. Or you know what? I'm going to give you Herod, the one that killed your, is going to kill your cousin, John the Baptist, the one that you love. I will put him in front of you. See, you should take him down right now, you know? I'm ready for those kind of battles. You know, you know Satan giving him real things, 
real sins that he can fall into. Murder, you know? Or, you know, any of those Ten Commandment things. But instead, what does Satan give Jesus to begin with? What's the temptation? Uh, Turning stones into bread? Oh, come on, this is boring. Really? This is how you're going to tempt? You're going to tempt by saying, here, Jesus, turn these stones into bread and have some food. Here's the thing. Satan, in the way that he tempts, the way that the devil tempts, is he takes the things that are good and he warps them and taints them and he tries to get us to use them in the wrong ways. Hear me, please. Temptations are the strong appeals to satisfy legitimate desires in wrong circumstances with strong means for wrong motives. Temptations are the strong appeals to satisfy legitimate desires in wrong circumstances with strong means for wrong motives. The Bible teaches the ends do not justify the means. God cares as much with the motives as He cares about the end results. And the devil, usually when he tempts, is tempting over our motives and our hearts and getting us to taint what is good. And here he is doing this to Jesus. Jesus, come on. What's wrong with bread? You need to eat. Everyone needs to eat. There's nothing wrong with this. And here's the problem. The devil is getting over a wrong motive that Jesus could take. The point of Jesus' miracles is not for him to fulfill selfish desires. It is for him to serve others. That is throughout his ministry. He doesn't do miracles to serve himself. He does it to serve humanity. The mission of Jesus was not for him to get the glory. Instead, it was to serve and to seek what was lost. And here the devil is trying to get him to reverse the very mission of what he was after. Oh, there's my book, sorry. Again, a book I plug a lot. Sorry, I plug it so much. But um, if you ever want a book that talks specifically about this issue of uh, the devil and how his tempting works, The Screwtape Letters, um, next to the Bible, this is my favorite book because I think C.S. Lewis uh, is able to talk to the psychology of man and what we face better than almost anyone in the modern world. And in The Screwtape Letters, there's an allegory about a senior devil, Screwtape, uh, talking to a uh, junior devil, Wormwood. And uh, in this, uh, we see the way that they talk about their patient, a human, and how to tempt this human. And specifically on this issue of taking the good and tainting it, this is the kind of conversation that happens. Here, let's see the conversation between two devils and what it looks like. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, meaning God's ground. I know we have have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, 
It is God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. And please hear this. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. You know, the uh, Christian sexual ethic has really gotten a bad rap. God is such a prude. What a prude. Really, sex in the confines of marriage between two people? Come on. God, get with the program. That is hard and that is difficult. Just, it's, we don't need to do that. Here's the thing. Sex is not bad. Sex is really, really good. And God is saying, its goodness is best appreciated with it is within my design and how I have done it. And here, the devil will say time and time again, why enjoy pleasures under God's way? It's okay to break the rules. It's okay to do X, to do Y. But instead, God is saying, if you really want to enjoy the pleasures of this world that I've made, have it within my confines. The devil is trying to get you to enjoy pleasures that will not, and will not lead to pleasure, but will only lead to enslavement. And Jesus' response is so fitting. Please look at this. The devil says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And in verse 4, And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Do you see what Jesus is quoting? He's quoting the very statements that the Israelites were making when they were in the wilderness. And what were they saying? God, we are in the wilderness and you have not given us food. It would be better if we were back in Israel, back in Egypt as slaves than to be out here in the wilderness free. It would be better if we were there in Egypt eating what they gave us rather than out here in the desert under your authority. And that is where it says, again, man does not live by bread alone. Jesus is saying to the devil, He is saying to us when we face temptation, Do you trust that God has what is best? That His design is best. And the way to enjoy His pleasures, the way to enjoy this world, is to trust in Him. I will posit this, and then we'll move on. And I said this 
time and time again, and I'll say it again. If you put anything, food, job, a sports team, a relationship, anything that is good and pleasurable, that is fine. I love the Green Bay Packers. It's okay to watch them. It's okay to have a good steak. It's okay to have sex in the confines of marriage. These are good things, but if you make them the main thing, they will lead to nothing but destruction in your life because what you'll end up doing is it will consume you. And the temptation of the devil, the whisper upon his mind, you need this. You need this more than God. Can you believe that God has not given that to you? And because he's not given it to you, you better scratch and you better claw. You better run over others. You better break the rules. You better do anything you can to get that thing. In modern language, what do we call that? Addiction. In Christian, I want to say to you, I'm a Christian. I'm not addicted to anything. You are so wrong. Addiction comes so quickly and so easily to any of us. Okay, let's move on. So the next thing what happens is that uh, the devil likes this idea of trying to separate Jesus from God the Father. And just before this, we saw Jesus at the high, the pinnacle, the beginning of ministry, the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove. We saw that the Son of um, God the Father saying, this is my Son, who I am well pleased. You know, hear the angel music. Oh, this is amazing. Jesus is in this amazing place. And then the next scene we see is 40 days in the desert. And we see the devil pressing against what we just saw. Are you? If you? If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. The very thing that God the Father said to Jesus. Now the devil is pressing upon Jesus. If you are the Son of God. Really, Jesus? Is God really for you? You know, you might have just experienced this high point, but now here you are, hungry, thirsty, 40 days in the desert, and you are thinking about the kind of mission that you have to do. You have to go to the cross. Is God really for you? Does He really have your best interest in mind? You see, the devil is a liar. He's trying very hard in this low point that Jesus is in, this place where he's hungry and thirsty, to say, really? God is for you? He wants what's best for you? He is, in fact, not going to allow you to rule this world. He's not going to be there for you, but instead he's going to put you on the cross and forsake you? That's a mission of someone that is for you? Again, the devil is a liar. He started from the beginning. He says to Adam, if you eat this fruit, or to Eve, if you eat this fruit, you surely will not die. He lies. Time and time again. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but 
I can Sunday morning raise my hands and I can sing songs like, uh, I can sing of your love forever. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I can sing all these things on Sunday morning and I can feel really, really good. Say, God, yeah, yeah, you're good. You're amazing. You're with me. You're for me. The mountaintops are high, but the valleys are low. And many times in those valleys, I hear the lies. What? You did that again? What? You fell into that trap? Really? You believe in a God that's for you and you face this? Really? God is for you? He calls you a son or a daughter and you continue to disobey Him? You are worthless. You know what? You might be best on your own. Why be in relationship with God? Then you tried it. It was a phase of life. Just move on. You don't need Him. He's not truly for you. He doesn't have what's best for you. You know, Luke does a great job. He talks about the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It's a relationship. The Trinity. Three things working together. And we see in the beginning of Luke, it says, the Holy Spirit led Jesus. And I encourage you, that Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, it was this work of the Spirit upon Jesus that allowed Him to know the Scriptures, to rely upon His comfort, to be able to respond to Satan. And that's why when Jesus is with His disciples, He said, it is an advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is one that can recollect the truth of God to you, can bring it back to your memory, can give you the word and comfort you when the lies come against you. When you rely upon the Spirit, you're allowed to put the full armor of God on. Because the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, will allow you to wage the wars against the devils and principalities of this world that will come against you. And Jesus shows that He cannot do it on His own. That He needs relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit to be able to stand against the evils of this world and the lies that come against Him. Listen, I can say it. I can give you platitudes and truths and all those things. Let me... I guess all I can say is from experience. These lies are real. They come. And they come powerfully. And they are, I don't know how the devil works upon our psychosis and our minds and our chemicals. I don't know the way that that works. But I know it's real. I know when I've been in certain places where I've started my ministry, specifically when I got ordained or planted this church, where things are going well, that the lies are the strongest. And they are fierce. All the things that would show that everything is going fine. All the things that would say, oh, life is good. It does not even matter because the lies are so strong. 
Arm yourself, please. You have the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy Spirit is in you. Trying to wage war against those lies that are trying to destroy you and kill you and bring you down into depression, even to places where we feel like we need to take our own life. This is a real battle. Not against just flesh and blood, but against the spirits of this world. And the devil wants you to fail. Arm yourself. And we see that Jesus just oozes Scripture. It just comes from Himself. He says, no, I know my God is for me. He has shown time and time again to the people of Israel that He has provided. He will do it again. Let me land the plane here. In this last temptation, the devil takes Jesus upon the temple. And uh, if you know anything about the temple in Jerusalem, that there is one section of the temple on the southeast side that if you look down, it looks down into the Kidron Valley. It would be literally a 450-foot drop if you jumped off the temple and fell. And here the devil says, jump off and let the angels protect you. Again, a biting word. A very strong temptation. Jesus, look, in front of all these people, in front of the authorities and the priests and the rulers of Israel, show them that you are powerful and mighty and that God is for you. Show them that you are the ruler of this temple by God protecting you. And the reason it's so biting is because Jesus would not be the ruler of that temple. Instead, he would be the sacrifice in it. <laughs> he would be the one taken outside of the city gates and put upon a cross to die and be a sacrifice for us. Where God would forsake him, where God would abandon him, where Jesus would take the sins upon the world upon himself. And the devil is trying to say, no, don't do it that way. Instead, prove yourself by doing this. I can just imagine the arguments of Christ. This will not remedy the situation. This will not solve the problems of this world if I do such a thing. I do not need to be the head of this temple. I need to be the sacrifice of it. Look with me. Here's Adam at the beginning, in the garden, with all the food he could ever ask for, with being sustained in all ways. And Satan comes to him with one temptation, and he falls. And here is Jesus, not in the garden, but in the desert, hungry, thirsty, no food. And the devil comes to him with three temptations. And he passes all of them. Who is the greater man? Who is the greater human? Adam or Christ? You see, Jesus did what none of us could do. 
he was able to face the thing that Adam faced in a greater way, in a fiercer way. And he was able to pass the test. And that's why it says in Hebrews, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself had suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That is good news. Dan, you don't know what it's like to be single and to face sexual temptation. Dan, you don't know what it's like to face the financial problems that I am going through. You don't know what it's like to feel like you're hungry sometimes when you can't get the food that you want. You don't know what it's like to see a parent suffering. You don't know what it's like. In fact, I don't. But there is one that does. Isn't that one that's worthy to be worshipped? Isn't that one worthy to give our lives to? <laughs> I love it. The end, of, the end of The Devil Wears Prada. They really try to get us to love Amanda Priestley at the end, right? Miranda Priestley. They get us to love. Oh, at the end, she writes this girl, Andy, a great reference. And Andy gets the job. Do you know what that line of reasoning is? Andy, if you suffer for this woman, if you take pain for this woman, if you worship this woman, then you will get what you really want. That is the message of the world. But the message of the new kingdom is this. Jesus would suffer for us. He would take pain for us. He would go through these things for us so that we would receive all the glories and blessings that this world has to offer. Last thing and I'm done. Last point to prove this. It says this in verse 7. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. This is what the devil says. And Jesus responds, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. This word worship is only used three times in all of the book of Luke. And the reference is specifically to bowing down. And the third time it is used is this. After Jesus has risen from the dead, and He is with His disciples, and He sends to heaven, it says in Luke 24, the disciples worshipped and bowed down. To Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Here is God Himself raising up to heaven, and the disciples bow down in front of Him. I'm going to ask this question of you every time in Luke Who is worthy to be worshipped? Who is worthy to be worshipped? Is this man? Is this person that's described in Luke, is he worthy to be worshipped? I will argue he is. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, this is, uh, this is a real war. This is a uh, real temptation. And in our modern world where we don't want to see uh, spiritual things, uh, it's, uh, we can't deny it. And we need you. We need you to work upon our hearts. We need you to help against the lies and the deceit and the temptation that comes. One that tries to tempt what is good and twist it for his own glory. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Thank you.